Hello and welcome. This is Mark Medeiros, and I'm with Negotiation Strategist Research. For our listeners, you know that persuasion, influence, and negotiation are how we communicate our needs to the world. Tricks don't win. Knowledge does. Hi, thank you for joining me with Lesson 13. This is Martin Medeiros with Negotiation Strategist Research. Today we're going to talk about knowledge, strategic knowledge, and we're going to talk about the research of Robert Cialdini, who wrote the book Influence, and a few other researchers on how to really hone our knowledge of what influences us, what grabs our attention. Without further ado, you know that I stand for the proposition that negotiation is a system. There are three subsystems, one of which is strategic, things we do beforehand, tactical, things we do at the negotiation, and operational, things external to the negotiation. Today we're going to talk about strategy, specifically knowledge. One of the things you have to think about in your strategy is knowledge. What are the pieces of information I want to deploy to influence, persuade, and negotiate to basically communicate to the world how I want my needs to be met. So let's talk about Robert Cialdini. So Dr. Cialdini published two uh, principal works. He's published a lot of stuff, but the ones I want to talk about today are his 1984 book in which he outlines a map of these are the major things that drive human beings to make us influence, to influence us. And his second book which was published in 2016, or the second book I want to talk about today is about persuasion. How do we actually prep, do the groundwork in order to persuade? Uh, before we persuade, he talks about this idea of persuasion, which is actually the name of the 2016 book. So, in the 21st century, one of the biggest challenges we have is grabbing people's attention. We have cell phones, these electronic devices, screens, it's very hard to keep, maintain, and capture people's attention. And he talks about two concepts. One is this concept of anchoring. Uh, this is when we create a questioning regimen that sympathetically makes us more receptive to a mindset. For example, make sure people know that you are communicating with them and that you're talking about this right now. So there has to be a mindfulness, a present attention when you're engaging person in a negotiation. The next concept is this idea of priming, which is to kind of get them in the move. So, for example, if I'm talking to someone and I want them to invest in a security technology, big security technology, I will anchor them by talking about loss prevention. You know, loss prevention is a very uh, important thing that we like to think. There's a little bit of conflict. And once I have them thinking on that, then I will think about their mind state. Well, wouldn't you like to sleep soundly at night knowing that your data is secure? Uh, this, uh, picture of restfulness is something that I will think of data security and good night's sleep. And then you can have the ask, well, I think your company should invest in this data security system if I'm the vendor selling. And that's kind of 
how we create that mind state, that sympathetic mind state before the ask. So, Chilvini also talks about in persuasion the six drivers that capture our attention in the 21st century, or perhaps of, since the beginning, since the dawn of time. One are things that are unique, new things. Um, we have a whole industry, the media, built on new things. If it's news, we like to see it. If it's different, if it's anom uh, uh, anomalous, we will be transfixed on that. So two, conflict, combat. These things capture our attention. That's why, uh, you know, in media again, we see a lot of uh, theatrical works that have a violent component because that actually captures our attention. It makes us pay attention. So two, another concept is the unfinished. If we see something that's unfinished, we like to think and connect the dots on finishing it. Unfinished work is something that does capture our attention. And so two, sex captures our attention as does the mysterious, things that are unknown that have, you know, they're like a little toy for our brain to think about what if. That's why people like to think about Bigfoot and UFOs because it's mysterious. Uh, those things also capture a certain percentage of the population's uh, attention. And perhaps the most important thing that captures our attention is anything all about us. And this has to do with a lot of uh, Dale Conner Carnegie stuff where he said uh, uh, the, you know, the sweetest sound to any person's uh, ears is the sound of their name. And have you ever had this, they often call this the cocktail party effect. Well, you'll, you'll be engaged at a party speaking with someone and across the room in a normal voice, someone will mention your name and all of a sudden you immediately pay attention there. When they weren't yelling, they weren't calling for you, you just came up in one of their conversations, but you are so tuned in to your name that you are really focused on hand, uh, um, and homing in on it and paying attention to it. So whenever things are of, about, concerning us, specifically by name, those things really capture our attention. And this is what he calls an embedded association. There's an embedded association with these things, the unique, the conflict, unfinished, sex, mysterious, and of course ourselves. So to ratchet it up, how do we maintain dialogue? How do we maintain engagement? In uh, 2018 in Lyon, France, there was a uh, uh, presenter uh, Sarakaya, he's actually on the Amazon Alexa team. And what was done was a little artificial intelligence bot was created and looked all over the internet and looked at dialogues people had and what kept them engaged, what kept people in the conversation and transfixed. And there are basically five rules of thumb that Sarakaya came up with. The first is to stay on topic. Second, to share experiences. Third, keep the conversation moving. Don't let it lie flat or delay. And four, elaborate. So as the conversation goes on, I want to put add little anecdotes, little facts to keep it, to elaborate on my initial thesis, my initial statement. And of course, uh, be polite. People who are rude, uh, generally conversations terminate pretty quickly with them. 
And that's what artificial intelligence tells us how to engage in dialogue and conversation. And so too, if you want someone to pay attention to what you're trying to persuade them to do, you'd be really smart if you would think about how do I do that? How do I stay on topic? How do I share my experiences? How do I keep the conversation moving? How do I elaborate? And of course, I am always polite. So I want to shift to Dr. Gildini's first book, Persuasion, uh, about persuasion, which is the book's title is called Influence. And he has these five or six concepts. The first is this idea of reciprocity, which means if I do something for you, you'll feel obliged, you'll feel a social tension to pay me back. And it doesn't matter what it is. If I give you a $5 you know, coffee um, card, say, or a gift card, uh, and we're negotiating a huge deal, uh, that $5 card will have the same impact on the deal, on you feeling attention to come my way as a $20 card would be. So what they found was in a lot of other studies and a lot of different cultures is it really doesn't matter the value of the reciprocal gesture, the favor. Uh, it has to do with that it was made. And there's a few mechanisms we're going to talk about. Second element is this idea of consistency. We like to deal with people who are consistent, and we generally do not like to deal with people who are erratic. And if we want people to deal with us, we want to be consistent. We don't want to do anything unexpected or erratic. Generally, it's often said, we do business with people we know, like, and trust. Part of trust is this concept of consistency. Also, he found, as did my survey, that authority is another way to influence people. Another element is this idea of likability. People, again, in that no like and trust troika that you hear in the popular media, uh, if we find people likable, if we find people attractive, we assign all these virtues to them that we have no proof of. For example, if we find someone likable, we'll think they're more honest, they're more trustworthy, they're more intelligent, things that we really don't have objective evidence on, but the fact, the mere fact that we like them will, again, assign these virtues on them. And part of that is commonality. We like people who we share a common experience. Oh, you like the same scotch. Oh, you're a veteran. Oh, you went to the same school as I did. All these things, these common elements, make us like other people. And it has nothing to do with performance or anything, but they are persuasive. So finding that commonality builds up this likability. Another thing is social proof. It, this explains a lot. Uh, fads, mob behavior. If everyone else is doing it, I don't want to be left out, so I'm going to go along. Social proof is a huge hammer. And there's different sub-elements to all these, and we'll talk about that mechanism. And finally, one of his concepts is scarcity. Whatever is scarce, we want more of it. Diamonds, whatever we perceive as scarce, unique, one of a kind, we find it highly collectible, you know, for no other reason than there's not many of them. Uh, this is something that has nothing to do with utility. So if you're thinking about what your needs are, uh, think about what is it? Do I just want it? Do I just think I need it? because it's scarce, or do I just want it because it's scarce, which some people, that's what they go with. So, with any social science, including um, Cialdini's work, I want 
learners to really understand the mechanism because I gave you kind of the, the headlines, but when you look at these studies, you want to know what the mechanism is. For example, remember we talked about consistency. Uh, this is important that we get people to act consistently. But how do we do that? What's the mechanism? What makes consistent behavior compelling? What makes people keep consistently doing something? Uh, in other lessons, we talk about social proof. You did it before, I'll do it again. Well, that's, hey, I want to be consistent. I want to do what I did before. So here's the mechanism for consistency. One, the ask, the initial ask has to be small. If you're trying to persuade someone, for example, will you um, come and meet at my location in my conference room to start off this negotiation. If, the, if you're in the same town, that's not a big ask. The second thing, it has to be voluntary. They can't be coerced or compelled. They have to say, oh sure, that sounds great. Great, I'll buy the coffee. That's a voluntary uh, consistency. I've taken the step, I'm voluntary. And the third element is when you publicly self-identify as taking a position that generally is a pretty solid agreement. That's a pretty solid um, manifestation of, yeah, I'm gonna have a good relationship with this person, a good business relationship. This is why generally people who give um, uh, commendations or recommendations or testimonials are generally all in. That. And that shows other people, again, authoritatively, hey, other people like them, and so do I. And this person really went out there. So that's a real big step. And those people are pretty solid customers, pretty solid relationship. If you declare in the public that something you like or something happened, generally you will keep declaring that, making that declaration. And with the other elements, Understanding the mechanism is important, so let's go over that. Reciprocity, basically give what you want to receive, and it creates a social tension. Consistency, it has to be a small ask, clear, public, and voluntary. Uh, commonality, we have to show that we have something in common and that our identities are common as well, that we are in a similar situation and our identities are the same. So to this guy of authority is we can deploy it to expose our own expertise, but what's more important is when other authorities endorse our position. That's actually more compelling than us selling our own stuff. Yeah, that's why you know, a product testimonial from a user is much more compelling than the vendor saying, hey, my stuff is great and here's why. Uh, Likeability. You know, uncover those real similarities, the commonality, and when, if you want to be liked, likability, a big thing is offering genuine praise. If someone does something and if you can authentically praise them, they will think much more highly of you. Uh, if it's false praise, most people will see through that. It doesn't have the same mechanism on this likability. Again, people we like, we find more persuasive. Social proof, this is following the crowd. Social proof works especially if we can show similarly situated people doing what we're asking people to do. 
just saying, oh, you know, 10 million people bought copies of this book and you should too. That's not too compelling if I said uh, 10 million people who are professional negotiators bought this book. Well, that's a lot more compelling, a lot more specific. It's, oh, I'm a professional negotiator. Maybe I should buy the book. I don't know if that's shameless self-promotion, but if you want to buy the book, go ahead. Um, scarcity. Uh, people want more what there's less of. And the mechanism is, um, it's a very subtle mechanism. It's, it's almost a crisis. The ultimate scarcity is crisis. When we feel in crisis, we tend to latch on to things uh, in an irrational way without stepping back and looking objectively. Scarcity um, is truly a crisis mindset, a um, not enough mindset. And it's, it's very compelling uh, to create that. So. There are a few other persuaders. I mentioned crisis. This is used a lot by politicians. You know, the world is going sideways, and I have your answers. Um, a lot of politicians uh, use term of crisis. Regret is something studies have shown. Uh, we are more likely to accept something if we mention regret. It's a little bit of a backhanded threat. Hey, I think you should take this position because... It's not going to last forever, and I don't want you to regret that not having taken this opportunity right now. Uh, another persuader is this idea of reason, where uh, naked demands generally don't persuade, but if we tell people the reason why, and it can be any reason, um, they may do it. And this was done in a call of the photocopier studies, where people were queuing up in a, to copy uh, a photo or a a machine in the in the old days when you used to use photocopy machines, and what went on is people would say, "Hey, I have only two sheets. Can I cut in line?" Sure, but counterintuitively, people would say, "Hey, you only have two sheets. I have ten. Can I cut in line?" And they said yes, and then they did other trials where, "Oh, I have a kid at home. Can I get in front of you?" Yes. What is having a kid at home having? There's no urgency. There's no, oh, I have a kid at home. Well, I know nothing about it. The fact that they gave me any reason, this person let them cut in line until they said totally arbitrary things like, I'm 24 years old. Can I cut in line? Sure. It's like they use these ridiculous arbitrary things, but it was the fact that a lot of people tune out and any reason for an ask will allow the person some psychological clarity to say, oh, it's okay to make this concession, even though it has nothing to do with urgency or need. Uh, just giving a reason is very persuasive. Um, also, this idea of uh, immunizing ourselves against third-party deception um, makes us more likely to disclose. For example, let me explain that a little bit. If I say, hey, if you tell me this and I'm not going to tell anyone else, or if I get in trouble, I'll, you know, uh, essentially indemnify, pay uh, for your damage, people are much more likely to tell that this is how we get witnesses to uh, testify against others. If we offer this type of immunity, some type of protection, not only in the criminal law situation, but anything else, hey, I know this is something you don't want to disclose, but here I will promise in writing or whatever that I won't use it against you. Whenever we give cover or financial 
uh, shield for some piece of information, people are much more likely to disclose it. This is a, the concept of immunity. Immunity uh, makes people a lot more agreeable to come our way with the request. So that's essentially the lessons of Cialini and the other researchers I mentioned. And here are the takeaways. Uh, of course, strategy is the most important thing. Part of your strategy is knowing knowledge. Part of knowing the knowledge is choreographing which one of these things am I going to do. So I know all about persuasion. We went over those elements. But think about persuasion, about anchoring, getting their attention. Again, this is a mandate of the 21st century. You've got to get people's attention. And then I can start getting into the persuasive aspects. The best persuasion is done when the person has agreed and they have no idea that they agreed because their mind state is such that, yeah, this is good for me. Those are very important things. It has to do with that anchoring, you know, get attention, anchor, and prime for the persuasion. And when you're trying to use one of these persuasive techniques, know what the mechanism is. Remember, if I want to be consistency, how do I get people to act, behave consistently? It's not the big ask out of the gate. It's that little ask. And then keep going up those small little concessions until a public proclamation that's voluntary is made. Then you have a true agreement that will probably stand the test of time. And that's it. Those are the takeaways. Thank you for listening to this Lesson 13. This is Martin Medeiros with Negotiation Strategist Research.